Ah, the sound of the violin, one of those things that can bring a tear to the driest eye, either because it sounds so achingly beautiful, or if you have a child struggling to master the notoriously difficult instrument because it sounds like you're putting a dead cat across a bandsaw. Now, that changed when an erudite and gentle Japanese man took his new violin teaching method to the world and stunned audiences with mass performances of children, some as young as three, playing sonatas with the best of the big kids. But Sunichi Suzuki wanted more than to wow aspiring parents of the next wunderkind. His true goal, which has largely been forgotten, was one of complete social transformation. Now, our next guest has done her best to remedy that omission from Suzuki's legacy in her new book, Suzuki, The Man and His Dream to Teach the Children of the World. And we welcome back to the program Eri Hotta, Japanese academic and author. You last heard from her here on LNL in about 2014, talking about her book, Japan 1941, Countdown to Infamy, a history of the attack on Pearl Harbor from the Japanese perspective. Eri joins us now from New York, which these days is her home. Welcome back, Eri. Many people have heard of Suzuki and his famous teaching method, but few of us know exactly what it is. Please explain. Of course, Philip. It is based on the idea, the method is based on the idea that learning musical instruments could trace a process of an infant learning a mother tongue. So basically, if you immerse a child in a very conducive environment, anybody could actually learn to play the violin or any other more difficult instruments. And uh, he actually didn't limit um, his methodology to music instruments at all. Actually, he wanted uh, his methodology to be applied to any other areas of learning, mathematics, calligraphy, or athletics even, or arts. So the philosophy uses listening, imitation, and repetition. Yes, and uh, goal setting, but incremental goal setting that the child would not be discouraged if even if he or she has a hard time achieving that goal. Everything in small steps helps, he thought. Now, Eri, you grew up in Tokyo and were taught piano at a young age, comparable to a Suzuki child. Yes, I started my piano lessons at age four, which is, I, I would say, comparable to um, a Suzuki child. I mean, some Suzuki kids start as early as two, but I think four is quite early. But I did not uh, learn it the Suzuki way. I followed the traditional way of learning to play the instrument and also learning to read the music at the same time, which is a, a huge hurdle, basically. You're sort of making your child learn to say, appreciate, say, Shakespearean sonnets while teaching you to learn how to read English. So I think the challenges is greater in the traditional method, whereas Suzuki would gently glide them into the appreciation of music through listening. 
Now, as a teenager, you discover Suzuki's autobiographical uh, book, Nurtured by Love, and this for you is transformational. Yes, that was transformational because at that point, I realized that the music making or music practice didn't have to be kind of a chore that I felt it was. So I was very much surprised by, I had heard about the Suzuki method or had heard of the Suzuki method, but had no real understanding of what the man was trying to achieve. And I was staggered to find out about his philosophy and what he has achieved in terms of uh, raising generations of uh, amazing musicians as well. He had a, a remarkable life, didn't he? Well, spanning pretty much the entire 20th century. But take us to his beginnings and to his eccentric family. Right. Um, well, first of all, you're right, Philip, that he had a remarkable century of a life because he was born in 1898 and he died in 1998. And the, his birth year, 1898, is quite uh, on the cusp of the turn of the century. And also it was a very mesmerizing time for Japan because it was modernizing and industrializing at a real mesmerizing speed. Uh, his father actually started producing violins, having turned his family business of uh, making shamisen, traditional Japanese string instruments, then switched from that shamisen making to violin, thinking that, that there was greater market opportunity in Western instruments. And he was right. And with the Japanese economy expanding into sort of more export-oriented markets, and especially with the boom years of World War One, his violin business thrived, Suzuki Violin, which is still in business today. Now, so, he, he was born into what could be described as a polyamorous uh, family because his mother oh, yes. was a geisha and his father's mistress. Indeed, indeed. Um, of course, keeping a mistress in those days was just a sign that you had arrived uh, in the world, I suppose, and the, the business was thriving. But the very unusual setup, family setup that they had was that he kept his mistress and also the original wife under the same roof. And uh, all the half siblings actually grew up together as real family. So it was a bit of a kind of religious commune situation. And the religion was the making of the violin. Now, I Suzuki say. himself came late to playing it, didn't he? Indeed, he was already 17 when he realized the beauty of the violin, the sound that the violin could make could really shake his soul. And that was when the family bought a gramophone and he played Misha Elman's rendition of Schubert's Ave Maria on the violin. And he felt that he was being enveloped by this velvety sweetness that he had not known before. Prior to this, his first love was philosophy and he oh, was a great admirer of Tolstoy. That's right. I think it also has to do with adolescence, that you are ready to absorb all the kind of influences from the outside world, from reading, from your adults. And I think he was very remarkably impressionable a teenager. But I think uh, the fact that his adolescence also coincided with 
Japanese sort of experiment with progressive education, democratic politics. And this was happening in the 19s and the 20s. And his education, both inside and outside of school, coincided that kind of firmament, liberal firmament. So I think he was ready to absorb humanistic teachings of Tolstoy and also Zen Buddhist uh, texts. And also he was interested in Francis Bacon's empiricism because he later sort of put so much emphasis on observation and reflection and, you know, trying to figure out answers for yourself. So now, I think that kind of reading had a lot to do with that now, formation. Now, a very important time in his life is when uh, Shinichi Suzuki suffers from tuberculosis, and this leads him to find a most extraordinary mentor. Right. Um, this tuberculosis illness, um, after he graduated from high school, he had a, a brief stint at Suzuki Violin, his father's business. But then he fell ill and he goes to a sea resort uh, in Okitsu in central Japan. And there he meets a very prominent family who introduces him to another prominent figure in Japanese history, Marcus uh, Yoshika Tokugawa who was uh, kind of an adventurer slash scholar, kind of an enlightenment figure for Japan. And he encourages young Suzuki to pursue music rather than sell violins. So that prompts him to go to Tokyo and he boards at the Tokugawa mansion in Tokyo. Um, and that eventually paves the way for him to go to Europe. I, I wish that you made your next book a biography of this extraordinarily enlightened gentleman because uh, he's a bloke who in the 20s wanted to curb the influence of politicians and uh, who also urged the granting of female suffrage. Indeed. So he's also a product of that kind of liberal era, short-lived one in Japanese history before all the Dark Valley stuff happened. So Suzuki moves to Tokyo in the 1920s, which is a, a very socially progressive place. Yes, it's very social progressive and culturally kind of very exciting because uh, there are new cinema studios being set up and Metro is running and department stores are being built and also, you know, cafe culture and jazz, um, all that stuff that was not available in Nagoya, his uh, birth city. So I think he was very much uh, absorbing all the excitement around him. So his mentor, Tokugawa, encourages Suzuki to learn the violin and persuades his father to let him study in Berlin, which leads to the most extraordinary adventures. Yes. Well, first of all, he ended up, Suzuki arrived in um, Berlin in late 1921 and ended up living there until um, so late 1928. And he had a hiatus in between, but he spent about six, seven years in that golden city in Weimar, Germany. And there he met his violin mentor, uh, Karl Klingler, and also his wife, uh, Waltraud, whom he would be married for the rest of his life. And also um, 
very famous residents of Berlin, Albert Einstein. Well, let's let's hold the press here. He meets Einstein. How did that happen and what did Einstein teach him? Right, Einstein was introduced to him by a mutual friend and there are different versions to the story, but it's true that Tokugawa knew him, for instance, and also they had a German acquaintance in common. So we don't know quite exactly who introduced them together, but they became acquainted enough uh, for Einstein to invite young Suzuki to chamber music concerts and to his home where he held home concerts and they socialized together. But I think there are several sort of seminal moments that Suzuki highlights in his autobiographical essays, but one stands out most, and that was when Suzuki was asked to play Max Bruch's uh, concerto in a home concert, and some old lady was heard, overheard, uh, saying to Einstein after Suzuki finished playing, oh, he's Japanese, how come he expresses the Germanness of Bruch so well? And Einstein apparently ponders this question a little bit and then says to her, Madame, people are all the same. And that that becomes a very central proposition because Suzuki will take this philosophy that no one is born special and that all talent is nurtured. Exactly. So everyone is talented to the extent that they could each maximize their given potential. And uh, the fact that it doesn't matter what you are born as or what kind of family background you are born into is the kind of vehement rejection of the conventional definition of talent, which is that it is inborn and people either have it or not. Meanwhile, back in Japan, the Great Depression is hitting the country hard and the Suzuki Violin Factory stops being, well, the golden egg for the family. So Shinichi Suzuki has to get a job for the first time and begins teaching. Right. So Suzuki uh, comes home to Japan and moves to Tokyo with Valtrout, um, where He actually forms a successful string quartet with his brothers, but it's not enough to um, keep going. So he actually stumbles into teaching at conservatories, but also takes on private students. And he didn't actually start out as a specialist in children, but there were some young students and he obviously had this... uh, Pied Piper-like quality, which disarmed children, and he loved children, and they loved him in return. So I think during over the course of the 1930s, he tries very hard to make teaching and learning accessible to these children. It's charming that he would accept students without auditioning them because he believed there was no such thing as natural-born talent. That's right. And I think that belief was really um, consolidated during this period in the 1930s because he really took on his students indiscriminately. Though I must say that um, it has to be qualified because students who have that kind of family 
um, support system to learn the violin in those days probably had very driven parents who really wanted them to learn the violin <laughs> and succeed in it. So I think they were not ordinary Japanese children to start with. And Western classical music was not as pervasive, perhaps uh, more pervasive than 10 years before that. But I think uh, the fact that those children's families wanted them to learn was quite exceptional already. As you uh, point out in the book, practicing and playing the violin should be approached as a part of one's daily routine, just as breathing, speaking, eating and sleeping and natural motions we undertake without a second thought. Right. And that was part of his uh, belief that his approach was basically a mother tongue approach, that you glide into this process just as you glide into the, the act of speaking your mother tongue, that it has to be a natural and incremental process whereby an infant picks up the language naturally and by the age of four or five, most of us have learned very complicated grammar and uh, none of us really think of it as a chore. I mean, you, you learn it naturally. Moving to 1941, he writes his manifesto called uh, Powerful Education against the backdrop of increasingly uh, ultra-nationalist and uh, conservatives in Japan. What does he call for? This thesis that he published in September 1941, which is basically on the eve of Pearl Harbor, he calls for an overhaul of Japanese public education entirely because he thinks that uh, it's not working and many children are being left behind and many children are unhappy. And he blames the teaching, not the children, for creating dropouts. And in fact, he calls them dropped outs, not dropouts, because <laughs> they are the ones who have been dropped by adults who did not bother to find a way to teach them effectively. Nothing, yes. nothing stops him from fighting the good fight because in <laughs> 1946 he writes another manifesto expressing right. strong criticism of the education system in Japan. Yes. So it's a kind of an I told you so moment for him because he basically faults the failure of education um, as the reason for Japan's predicament, Japan's defeat, and the fact that it barely survived the war, doesn't mean that it's going to survive another predicament. Um, if education fails another generation, um, Japan is doomed, he feels. So he again urges the, the public school reform, saying that the government has to intervene at much earlier stage and not create dropped outs. And, and to follow his methodology, which had so proved itself so effective in violin teaching, uh, this idea of repetition, goal setting, and memorization, which seems to work in many other areas of learning. Eri, I want to ask you a personal question to finish yes. our chat. 
How have your kids gone learning the Suzuki method? <laughs> right. I only have one daughter, uh, and she's 15, and she's thrived under the Suzuki method. Um, even though um, she only had four years of Suzuki uh, in the beginning of her studies in Japan and in, in New York. Now, there are criticisms, aren't there, of, uh, of the method? Mm-hmm. Yes, the most commonly heard one is that the, it's over-reliance on hearing and on ear because um, it doesn't really teach you to read music. But I don't think that's such a, a great problem as long as music uh, reading is introduced at a proper stage. I think in many Japanese schools, um, music curriculum included music reading, so that was not a problem. Then, but I think many schools around the world cut music and arts as the first thing to cut. And I think many people don't get that education, basic education. So I think that has to be supplemented. So you can start you can start learning at three. I wonder if it's too late to learn at eighty-three. <laughs> I'm gonna go and get a violin and thank you. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for coming back, Eri. Eri Hotter, academic and author of Suzuki, The Man and His Dream to Teach the Children of the World, published by Harvard University Press. Stream any ABC radio station live and on the go. Discover new podcasts, music and audiobooks, all free on the ABC Listen app.